Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. And away we go. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast, episode number 17. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my co-host, Mike Perry. Michael, welcome. Good to see you, buddy, as always. Uh, how's everything down there in uh, the blooming metropolis of New Jersey? It's, it's as beautiful as you could imagine it to be. Um, so I'm sure it smells, smells fantastic as well. Uh, you, you're, 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 now, you're, you're profiling, Mike, you're really profiling. Um, uh, hey, listen, if you drive, if you drive down 95 and you go through New Jersey, you're going to smell some weird stuff. That's just how it is. You just got to get off the highway and see the beauty, but we, we digress here because we got an <laughs> awesome guest and, and we don't want to hold him up. Uh, we have Mr. Derek Hansen and, and both Mike and I, before we got on, we're talking to Derek about how much we've kind of stalked him and, and, and followed his work for, for many years up until now. He's a, for those of you who don't know, he's an international sports performance consultant that's been working with athletes of all ages and abilities and speed, strength, and power since uh, 1988. Uh, his coaching career started in track and field, uh, working with sprinters of all ages and eventually with college, uh, worked at... Uh, uh, Simon Fraser University for 14 years. And then since then, he's been working with NFL, NBA, MLS, NHL, you name it. He's worked with them. He's, he's gotten to be uh, quite the uh, specialist and superstar in the speed world. Welcome to the Principles of Performance, Derek Hansen. Uh, thanks for having me, fellas. Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad to be here and hopefully I can uh, shine some light on some things. We'll see. All right. Well, let's get started. And, and we always like to take a step back and make it as simple as possible in, in terms of taking a, a global view. And before we can talk about the intricacies of speed, define what speed even means to you. Well, honestly, I mean, every time that I work with somebody, uh, we have to define it in terms of their sport or what, you know, what their uh, position is, where they're at. And so, you know, if I have to work with a, a track and field athlete, speed could be, you know, related to the duration of their event, the length of their run, um, you know, and even with field events, it's a little different uh, in terms of, you know, what they have to achieve on a runway for a long jump or even high jump. My daughter's doing high jump now, so I watch a lot of that. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I just worked with a soccer player earlier today and we're working on some shorter speed. Then later on today, I have to work with a, an MMA fighter, a world champion, and our de definition of speed is, is different in terms of like acceleration, explosiveness off the line versus somebody who might have to hit a top speed uh, on a kick return or covering a, a punt. So it really depends on who I'm working with, but certainly there's an aspect of acceleration, start acceleration and then hitting top speeds and then maintaining that if there's a, a speed endurance component so um, i'm always having to redefine 
what the parameters of speed are with whoever I'm working with. Yeah, it's definitely contextual, isn't it? Um, you know, I, I think about all the different athletes that I've worked with over the years, and I don't have a ton of track and field experience, but I have worked with a lot of uh, field and court athletes. But let me ask you this. So how much of traditional track-based speed training, how much of that carry, carries over to field and court sports, and when does it not carry over? I think, you know, most of the time the carryover is going to be in that shorter segment, uh, acceleration, teaching people how to start properly, uh, obviously using things like the drills just to, just to train things like posture, uh, stride frequency, um, getting through range of motion, uh, how you approach hitting the ground. So the drills are very useful for for prepping people in field sport and court sports and, and and developing a not only a physicality but certainly a technique around what they do. And then you can you can talk about you know scenarios within their sport, like in basketball, just you know getting by somebody is probably going to be three steps, four steps. Uh, whereas in track and field, you know there's a lot more uh, probably. And, and I, you know, it, it's different, but, but certainly hitting that max velocity and getting beyond max velocity and maintaining that. So there's a specific fitness quality that has to be trained regularly that you don't necessarily train in court and field sports because you never get to that position in terms of duration of sprint and acceleration. And even hitting max velocity, we watch the NFL and you see on their uh, next gen stats, you'll see, oh, Tyreek Hill hit 21.9 miles per hour. Well, if you watch a, a, an Olympic 100-meter final for the women, they're running faster than that. They're 23 miles per hour, maybe 24 miles per hour. So within that context, it's it's not impressive unless you really understand what Tyreek Hill is doing on the field and, and the, the constraints he has. So you're training something a little different for football versus track and field. And certainly as the, the court or the, the field gets smaller – then you're talking about just pure acceleration or even just starting strength and power. So there's elements of track and field that you can take uh, and you can apply to the training, but it is very limited in terms of, you know, the amount of distance you cover or the total volume in a workout in track versus what you can do with a, a quarter field sport. Now, obviously speed has been in the DNA of your programming since the, since the beginning, but um, as most things are in fitness, as, as we've all been in this business for quite a while, is things kind of go in these cycles. And right now, sprinting is is cool as hot. Um, but that means a lot of people are going to jump on the bandwagon and misinterpret and misunderstand what that is. Tell us what you're seeing out there is how strength coaches are screwing up uh, speed in, in teaching running mechanics. That's a good question. And, and this is something I, I was just on a call with my buddy, Rob Panarello. And he's got a Thursday night game tonight for Carolina. So he's telling me about all the craziness that's happening there. But um, I told him, I said, you know, most of the hamstring problems that I see with athletes, I think are related to inappropriate programming on the strength side. So, you know, again, the athlete that I work with today, you know, showed up all sore. She's a soccer player and we're working on speed. And I said, well, what did you do the previous day? Well, we're doing like, uh, you know, 12, four sets of 12 uh, uh, reps and deadlift. I'm like, okay, you know, you knew you were doing speed today. Maybe you should have intervened there and told the guy that was, you know, I, I don't coordinate with that guy, unfortunately, but 
but you know, that's inappropriate for what we're doing tomorrow. And every circumstance where I've had to step in and, and, and figure out what's wrong in a hamstring strain case, or even other soft tissue injuries, when you go back and you look at what they're doing in their strength training, it's totally incompatible. You know, whether it's the timing and positioning of when things happening, like there was a, a division one football program, they had, you know, 17, 18 hamstring strains in spring ball. I'm like, that's unusual. I think that's a record. Um, and then you go back and find out that the strength coach was squatting them before practice, heavy squats, deep squats before practice. Well, yeah, that doesn't really sound like something I would do. Um, that, that doesn't make sense. Right. So I think you have to reverse engineer some of these, you know, these programs and, and figure out, okay, we have to change what you do in the weight room to be compatible with that. What happens when you're sprinting and, 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 and the same thing, another collegiate program athlete had six, seven hamstring strains. And then you go back and you find out that it relates more to what happened in the weight room and how they, you know, progress speed or they didn't progress speed uh, and, and, and didn't integrate those things properly. And, and then you see what the problem is. If you have somebody doing a high tension, uh, deep flexion, you know, we can use time under tension. I know some people don't like that, but certainly it does apply. And then you want somebody to go run fast. It doesn't work really well. They're so different, right? And people think, well, I just need to get stronger to get faster. But there's a lot of steps in between that have to take place to make sure they have that coordination of, of muscle contraction and relaxation to make things work out and keep things safe. So I, I don't know what the analogy is in auto mechanics, but certainly if, if you have a, you know, a, a Formula One car, you're not in the back pulling tractors or, you know, plowing fields in the back with that <laughs> before you take it out onto the track. But I think that's where people go wrong. Interesting. So it, it's funny, you mentioned uh, sort of the strength and conditioning component. And um, I work with a lot of professional uh, MMA fighters. And, and one of the things that I always ask them is, you know, we're, we're talking about today's workout, but I also need to know what you did yesterday. And I need to know what you're doing tomorrow. Because if we don't understand sort of what's happening in that three-day span, we really can't dial in your training program to be as optimal because we just, we, we need to know what's, what we're setting you up for in a way, but we also need to know what you're recovering from. And um, one of the things that I've noticed is um, with strength, strength coaches in general is um, they really don't understand, you know, how, how significant the neurological system plays, uh, how significant the role the neurological system plays in sprinting and how taxing that can be because, I think a lot of people don't truly understand the difference between speed training and conditioning, and they are different. Can you uh, dig a little bit into that with us? Yeah, no, you're you're right on there uh, because I think any people think running is running like it's like this, you know, it's it's this broad spectrum that you you guys know, you know, in terms of short sprints to running marathons. But everybody think running is this unified thing, and it's not. Like there's all of these iterations and and somebody doing um like an example would be football programs doing 20 by 110 110 yards you'll hear about those a lot like oh what'd you do today oh we did some sprinting and like 20 by 110 with 45 second breaks that's you know that's just hell it's not sprinting um but but certainly if you start defining what actual sprinting is, people are like, oh, really? Like, oh, okay, I got to take that much break in between to make sure that quality is there. Um, so there, there has to be a lot more education around what is sprinting, what is, you know, 
tempo running or what is jogging, you know, what, what, where conditioning fits in. And I don't know if, if that education has been there. I mean, if you, I mean, uh, you guys have your CSCS, like I have it, I can't remember them talking about running and sprinting in any depth. Right. Um, but they certainly, you know, you certainly had to know, uh, you know, what the difference is between like hypertrophy and max strength and all that. So I, I think there's an educational gap right now where, you know, people think it's just, you know, training is training. Um, and, you know, if it's tough, it's good. Uh, but but there are these nuances that are extremely important, especially as you move up the chain in terms of, um, you know, working with a wide receiver in the NFL and understanding the demands they have on them in terms of the number of reps they have to do in training camp and in practice and, and then getting them fit and ready to, to reproduce it in the game. So it's, it's, it's way more complicated. Like I'm going to be teaching courses next week uh, in New York city. And so I have to go through and I have to, on the one hand, I have to dumb things down and, and, and it's not because people are dumb. It's just because I have so much experience now that I have, I can't think like, you know, what do I want to see? I got to think about the people I'm delivering the course to and saying, okay, here's some very basic stuff. And then gradually build on that so that they understand, oh, okay, now I get it. Um, because it is very complicated. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, you know, what? as we're sort of, you know, digging in a little bit deeper into sprinting, et cetera, let's sort of talk about sort of your training programs in general. And, and obviously we know you do a ton of speed work, but um, what percentage of your training programs implement tools such as, you know, bands and sleds and hurdle work? Um, kind of give us a, a sort of a global view of what that looks like and how often you use those implements. Yeah, uh, I think, I mean, again, that's another good question because I think a lot of people associate sprint training with those tools. Like, hey, I got to do that. I got to pull something. I've got to, you know, have some resistance. And again, it it goes back to this idea that resistance training is good. And so we have to have resistance everywhere. And uh, when I was growing up and, and doing track and field as an athlete, and then eventually coaching, um, most of the time it, we didn't have those tools. Like those weren't very popular tools back in the eighties and nineties only more recently has like, Hey, we got to slap a parachute on somebody or we have to have them go through a speed ladder. Um, there's certainly been a product orientation around that with the training uh and i it's not a bad thing like i use all those things as well but i would say i'm probably using those things more earlier in the program so like i'm defining what a general a gpp or general preparatory period is now and i will use those tools more because it builds strength it builds capacity it slows things down so if i'm using a band or a sled or going uphill we can work on technical elements because we've kind of slowed things down with that, that tool. And that's the biggest value of that tool. It's not necessarily the fact that we're dragging load. It's the fact that it puts us in a better posture and we can work on that posture for a longer duration because of that tool. So I think I'm using those more as um, a means to an end to, to get people so that they can sprint properly, have the capacity and then now we can really start moving fast. But I think if you keep using those tools too long, you're going to impair speed and just that natural technical ability and, and the running mechanics around that. So I think, you know, I do use them, but I, I know when to start tapering those things off and really letting people express themselves maximally with their running. 
Now I want to go a little bit deeper with the, the, the technical piece you're talking about, because I know you have a course on running mechanics. So how important are the uh, technique aspects of running mechanics for the non-track coach working with non-track athletes um, in terms of teaching running mechanics? I, I think it's, it, it's, you know, I'll hear people like, again, you go on Twitter and you go on social media and you'll see these little arguments and like, ah, running, you know, running technique doesn't do anything. It's all about loading. And, but I will go back to every case where I've had to do a return to play process um, where somebody, again, hamstring, hip flexor, adductor strain, calf strain. If you go back and you look at their mechanics, there's something wrong that led them to this point. And sometimes it's acute, sometimes it's chronic, it's a buildup over time. But as soon as you, every return to play or rehab uh, process for me is an opportunity to teach somebody how to run better or sprint better. So every time we employ that methodology, people get better and they don't get injured again, or, or it's very rare. You know, I had one kid who was a, a soccer player. Again, when somebody has repeat chronic hamstring strains, it means something is wrong. Something, you know, uh, you can talk about pelvic orientation and all these things, but usually it goes back to the, how they're executing the mechanics. And if the mechanics are inefficient, they're putting stress on areas of the body that shouldn't have that extra stress or they can't handle it. So, we go through this process of, okay, this is where your feet should land. This is how your arm should coordinate with your lower body. And once you get that working, you have no problems in terms of injuries. And then you can start loading that frame or that structure, uh, you know, uh, with more volume, more intensity with external loads, and you don't have as many problems and they get faster because you've done it properly. So I think that's what I'm encountering all the time is, for whatever reason, they weren't taught properly or they've been just beat down so that their mechanics, you know, just deteriorate when you're fatigued and, you know, their hips sink and they're overstriding and they're pushing on the ground too long. They have no elastic response anymore. And so that's what my process is with return to play is let's make them better runners. And guess what? You know, it just works. We don't have to do anything else. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out where you can find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. So we're, we're big checklist guys. And so we teach courses on program design. It's all about checklist. Are you meeting, you know, at least answering these questions and meeting these marks from a looking at someone technically running, is there a, a simple checklist you immediately go to of your top two, three, five things that you say, these are the first things I look for to see if they're inefficient in their mechanics? Yeah. One would be just general posture. Like how are things lining up? So whether it's, uh, you know, maximum velocity where they're a little more upright, whether they're accelerating, you want to see a nice, even line. You don't want to th see things like where people are bending over or leaning back. Um, and then as part of that, so if this is, you know, sort of the line of drive, you want to see that the, the uh, limbs are kind of projecting the right way and, 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 and setting them up for good posture. So if somebody is like, say, 
you know, going back too far like that, it tends to turn me over forward, which will, you know, affect my posture negatively and how my foot strikes. So I would say start with posture and then I start with upper body arms. And then I look at legs and where the feet are landing after that, because if I set the posture up and I get their arm mechanics right, there's this downstream effect of lining everything up nicely. If I just go after the legs and, and don't address those other things, it gets much more difficult. So I've just learned over the decades here that start with where the head is looking, where the eyes are looking, then work my way down into the shoulders and the arms and how the hands are projecting. And it, you know, usually I don't even have to talk about the legs or the hips or anything like that. It just solves itself. Got it. So now you, you've talked a bunch about hamstring injuries. Obviously, you mentioned, you know, poor programming on this on the strength and conditioning side being a component of it. What are some of the other factors that you see that are that are huge contributors? Um, one would be, uh, well, yeah, the programming and then the, um, the the mechanical side, obviously the technique. So uh, inappropriate loading or weightlifting mechanical side and then lack of exposure to speed. So if somebody's like, you know, OK. Uh, they're in a game, they pull their hamstring and then you go back and you say, okay, well, what did you do to prepare yourself for not pulling your hamstring? What does your speed work look like? Right. Uh, we did uh 21 10s. Okay. Well, that's not speed. Right. And you just go reverse engineer everything and figure out what they did. And a lot of the time you'll find out they didn't do a lot of acceleration work and they probably didn't do a lot of max velocity work. So by doing the work, it protects you. Right. So it's, it's, uh, you know, stress inoculation as a lot of people refer to it. So by doing the work, you strengthen the hamstrings in the right way at the right speed, the right velocity. Uh, obviously if the mechanics are good, even better. So a lot of people haven't done, you know, there's people in the NFL that I've encountered who are wide receivers and are running backs and they don't do sprinting in the off season. I'm like, what are you doing? Right. And then it's no, no surprise when they have, chronic hamstring problems, Achilles, uh, uh, ACL, even non-contact ACLs, right? Because they're not used to handling that velocity. So, you know, whether it's mechanics, whether it's load, fatigue, um, whether it's just exposure, it's all of those things intertwined together. Maybe they have a bad warm-up too. You know, you can start factoring things in, uh, you know, sleep, diet, and then you just work your way down. But I would say the first thing is, are you sprinting in the off season to prepare yourself? If not, if that check hasn't been checked off, then we have a problem. And then you go, okay, what are those mechanics when you do sprint? Because even if you have poor mechanics, at least if you've sprinted, you've strengthened that, you know, poor mechanics properly and the muscles might have some exposure to that stress, right? And then, okay, let's fix the mechanics. Okay, great. Let's make sure you're eating, sleeping properly, and you have a good weight program that fits. Right. All of those things are important. But I would say right off the bat, have you done any sprinting to prepare yourself? <laughs> that makes way too much sense. Um, <laughs> so it, se it seems to me that, um, you know, what you're saying is that speed development is a year round commitment. If you really want to optimize what you're trying to do, it's not a seasonal thing. It's a year round thing. It's obviously you're, you're going to change the dosage and, you know, uh, <clears throat> you know, training volume, intensity, all that other stuff. But seems like what you're saying is if you really want to be a good sprinter and you want to maintain overall musculoskeletal health, you kind of have to be doing it all year round. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you'll see the degradation in pro sports where in college you're kind of, you got to do the workouts, right? 
uh, once you get into pros, uh, and, and then obviously in college, you want to run a good 40 at the combine, right? So you're doing some speed work unless you're, you're totally out, out to lunch. Uh, and then you get to the pros. Uh, how much is there mandatory off mandatory off season training? No. Um, but you know, you'll get your, your workout bonus. If you show up to the five weeks of strength and conditioning in the off season. So most people do, but five weeks isn't a lot. Right. And then there's practice OTAs and all that. And then you're off for four to six weeks. You could go to Florida and do nothing. Right. You could hang out with your buddies and and do Instagram uh, photos, whatever. So our, our beach training with Odell Beckham. Right. So, um, y- you know, if if they don't adopt a annual plan of maintaining that those dosages, as you mentioned, then there's going to be a problem and they're going to get slower and slower and slower and injuries are going to be more of a problem as they go through their career. And we see that all the time, right? It's, you know, uh, you know, even, you know, again, I'll bring up Tyreek Hill, maybe, you know, he's maintaining a level of, of performance, but I would say, you know, generally his velocities have gone down, but he was starting from a very high position. So if he falls down by one mile per hour, he's still faster than most of the people on the field. But, you know, I know he does some track and field training in the offseason. That's just part of his uh, his upbringing, right? So, but are all, all the players doing that? I don't think so, because we can see the results on the field from year to year. So from a programming standpoint, obviously there's a lot of factors in terms of what you're doing otherwise in the program. But what's kind of the sticking time from a neurological standpoint that you say, if you're not getting sprint work in at least – every blank amount of days, you're going to start to see every day after that, it, you're going to start to lose it. Is it have you found a, a, a somewhat of a magical window in there? Yeah, I would say like the maintenance, and it depends, right? But the maintenance frequency would be like, hey, you get out there two times per week, right? So let's maintain whatever speed that I have. I'm a pro athlete. Okay, get out there. Maybe one of those days is more acceleration, you know, shorter distances, maybe some resisted stuff. And then the other day, let's move a little farther out, hit a higher velocity. And if you just rotate between two days per week, you're going to be okay, right? Like I'm an old guy, I go out there two times per week and, you know, I'm trying to slow uh, the decay of my speed, but, you know, getting out there two times per week is good. If you want to actually start building things, you probably have to get out three times per week and start really committing to, to putting in some volume you know, 300 meters or yards per day. So you're getting about a thousand yards per week. That's where I think, you know, uh, a lot of people need to be, but, you know, get out two times per week and at least work on this stuff. And then the other two days, you know, maybe you're lifting two to three times per week and then a couple of conditioning sessions uh, and some skill work. But I think, you know, I don't know how many people are doing that at, at, at the elite levels. Um, because it is like it's pulling teeth again maybe they had a bad experience in college where their sprint workouts were actually conditioning workouts as you guys mentioned and they're like i don't want to do that right but when you actually show them what actual speed is with good breaks maybe they would actually do it but i think we're so far removed from that 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 people just don't know what good speed training is right now Interesting. You know, uh, that makes me think of sort of, uh, you know, the old sort of chart of training residuals, right? Like how long can you maintain each quality for? And, and I could be wrong, but uh, looking at a lot of the work of uh, like um, <clears throat> Tudabampa and, and a lot of the old, you know, Soviet Russian texts they talk about, uh, I want to say, and, I, and I, you probably know better than I would, but, um, you know, you can start to lose max speed 
uh, if you don't train it in like, I think around seven to 10 days, do you find that that's pretty accurate if people aren't, if people aren't sprinting enough? That would make sense because the usual, usual taper period in uh, track and field is about seven to 10 days. Right. So, but at least even in that seven to day, 10 days, you're doing sub-maximal efforts like 90%, 95% to just maintain it but you're trying to stay fresh, right? For that big meet. So yeah, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like I would say 10 days would probably be the longest you'd want to stay away from it. Interesting. And, and again, people think you can just do it once a month and, and, and maintain sort of your, your, you know, your overall, you know, high end, uh, top end speed and obviously your acceleration, but um, let's uh, change gears a little bit because you earlier, you were talking about sort of some return to play protocols and, uh, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the key factors and progressions that you need to see before some uh, giving someone a green light to just go ahead and resume training? Are there any things that you like to, again, we're going back to sort of that checklist question, but are there certain things that you tend to see from a trend standpoint with the majority of your athletes? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I've been dealing with a couple of uh, cases uh, in the NCAA where uh, we've had athletes you know, and I don't want to crap on the staff, but um, where they've had, say, uh, a foot fracture or something like that, and uh, they were in a boot for like six to eight weeks, and then the first thing they did was uh, get green lighted to go run again. And I'm like, oh wait, there's a lot of steps in there between being in a boot <laughs> on a scooter and running again, right? Maybe it involves a pool. So I think the big thing for me is like, was there a progression? Was there a proper progression? And then as soon as you start saying, okay, you know, over, let's say over 14 days on consecutive days, there's work given and there's, you know, sort of a step loading process. Now I'm like, okay, great. I know that they've put that work behind them. So it's easier for me to move on to the next item and the next item from there. So, um, you know, how long before somebody can do maximal linear sprinting? Well, you know, there's all this submaximal work. There's some acceleration work I want to see. There's some drill accumulation I want to see, foot contacts with like maybe some low amplitude plyos. And then we're getting to linear sprinting. Okay, well, when is change of direction? Well, you know, we got to do some plyos to, to make sure that they're reactive and maybe some deceleration work as part of the, the sprint work. And so uh, like you guys, I'm checking boxes all the time and I have to do these sort of conceptual diagrams as, and I, I, it's almost like a step loading diagram where I say, okay, they're starting with a marching A, then they're doing a skipping A. And then way over here is like sprinting with the direction change, right? But there's all these steps in between that people have to hit before they're green lighted to do, you know, what, you know, full practice, right? And I think that's what's missing is people just want to advance people, you know, you know, it's like in school, like, hey, you can't read yet. Well, let's let's move you to university, right? You know, there's steps <laughs> missing in this process because people either are, and I hate to say it, they're lazy. They don't want to take that time to run people through these other drills and these other exercises, or they just feel pressure to move them to back on the practice field or back ready to play because um, maybe the coach will be happier that you've returned them, but they're not returned safely. And, and as, as part of all of that, there has to be some stress in that progression. So you have to test them with a maximal sprint at some point or a maximal change of direction before you put them on the field. And I feel sometimes that there's practitioners who don't want to do that because they're fearful. And if they get injured on the field, that's not their problem. But if they get injured in the training room or in the strength and conditioning room, 
well, I'll look bad, right? But you, there's there's a risk management piece that you have to uh, engage in as part of that progression to make sure that they're bulletproof by the time they hit the field. So why people aren't doing that? Maybe there's an educational gap. Um, maybe they're afraid. Uh, maybe they're lazy. Maybe all of the above. I don't know. But I'm still trying to figure that out because, um, you know, it's 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 tough. Like if you're a parent and you're sending your kid off on a scholarship somewhere and they get injured, good luck. Like, you know, the three of us should start a consultancy around like managing parents and kids when they send them off to, to, to programs. Right. Cause uh, I just see a lot of horror stories. There's a ton of gold and a lot to unpack with what you just said there, but, but a couple nuggets I want to pluck out of that. And I want you to expand on is the importance for the field and the court athlete that they need to move not just linearly, but in multiple directions, and they need to work on their ability to decelerate and then amortize and reaccelerate. And as I explained to my athletes, it's not always the one who's the fastest who makes the most plays, it's the one who gives away the least speed. Um, so talk about that relevance and how that's underappreciated, I think, a lot in the preparation of, of field and court sports. Yeah, that's it's huge. It's it's and I think we take it for granted that you can just drop them back into practice and then they'll just do whatever, right? They'll 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 manage. Uh and I think the problem is is that with good athletes, you can do that. So I think a lot of these practitioners are like, oh, put him back. Oh, he was fine, right? He was on the scooter and we jogged him and put him in the alter G and now he's fine, right? But that athlete has just managed very well and compensated very well, where most of them can't do that. So you have to take those steps and make sure that they've done all of those you know different things along the way and so my even with hamstring uh return to play i found out early on because i work with track athletes first and they don't have to decelerate and change direction right so i had a couple of cases with football players where they re-injured their hamstring when they cut because of the co-contraction between the quad and the hamstring was very strong so Okay, we have to introduce deceleration as and direction change as part of the return to play process for for hamstrings now. And so it might be, okay, let's get them to accelerate. Okay, now they're accelerating maximally. The other part of that is that I do like a 10 by 10 um, uh, rehab program where it's like run 10, decelerate, turn back, run back, do that 10 times, takes about 90 seconds. There is deceleration in there. So there's value. So if I, I think the maximum we might do is 10 sets. So that's a hundred accelerations, but also a hundred decelerations. So they're getting some deceleration, but certainly now we have to start going to the next phases. If I accelerate for 10, maybe I get them to decelerate over five and then maybe over three yards. And, and, and we have to have that progression and then accelerate, decelerate for three, uh, then re-accelerate linearly or, turn left or cut off of that. And so we have all these iterations of what I want to do with the most stressful being a shuttle there and back, you know, with a 180 degree turn. Um, and then maybe doing multiples of that to, to test that eccentric concentric, you know, uh, coordination and, and stress ma management. So I, I think I'm probably a little more fastidious than most about making sure every step is, is managed along there. And I've, I've ticked off those boxes like you guys are doing. Um, but, you know, trying to get other people to do that. I remember I was working with one program and I said, this is what you need to do for your hamstring. And it was, they were athletic trainers. They're more on the medical side. So they're not coaches per se, but I said, you gotta be out there and you gotta be watching every rep. And they're like, okay. 
at the end of the day, they came back and they said, Oh my God, that was a lot of work. I had to watch every rep and I had to, you know, yeah, that's, that's what you got to do. Right. You have to do that. You have to be a coach, um, as part of the rehab. And I think that's, that's where people are starting to finally realize that, okay, we have to manage every aspect of this, the technical side, the loading side, the recovery, the progression, everything. Um, and even the, the, the psychological and the personality side, you have to talk to the athlete. How are you doing? Here's some video of you doing it. This is what you look like. Okay, great. I adjust this, right? So you have to be a sports scientist, a medical practitioner, a strength and conditioning coach, and a sports psychologist, right? Um, and you only realize that when you actually have athletes under your care and you realize that you're the only support network that they have. So you better learn these, these skills. Um, am I right? A hundred percent. I love all of it. And then again, I'm kind of digging through the gold here, Derek, and picking out nuggets. I want to go on because you, you, you touched on something I, I had next on my list, which is your 10 by 10 protocol. And, uh, uh, it's, it's so simple and, and, but yet elegant and effective. Tell everybody a little bit more about like what that is, how when someone gets starting with it and then kind of what the progressions look like of that. Yeah. It's, it, I was even thinking about that today. Um, because the way it's done and it was originally planned as a rehab protocol. So, uh, track coaches were using it in Canada, uh, under Gerard mock. Um, and they were using it to rehab a hamstring, right? And they said, oh, okay, as long as that hamstring strain was, uh, you know, at least 10 days away from the meet, we'd have enough time to get them ready. So that's another reason why they have a 10-day taper is they think they can rehab them in about 10 days. So the idea would be that by doing these short accelerations, you're still training, but you don't get into this sort of late swing phase where you're nice and tall and the hamstring is exposed. So you get into the late swing phase, there's maximum stretch on the hamstring at, in an upright position. So when you're accelerating, there's knee flexion on ground contact, right? So you don't get into this big stretch of the hamstring, but there still is some activation of the hamstring, right? We know it. So, um, and I wish somebody would do like an EMG study of like different phases of the acceleration to max velocity to see what the change is, but that's a lot of work. So you just have to go with it. Um, but the idea would be if I do 10 meter accelerations or 10 yard accelerations, which is about seven steps, um, we're going to stress that hamstring in a progressive manner uh, and load it without having a recurrence of a problem, right? So you're strengthening that hamstring. Okay. The next time we go out after maybe three or four sessions, let's go out to 12 and a half yards or meters. Then let's go out to 15 and then let's go out to 20 and then 25. And so every time you go out five yards or five meters, you know, they start getting a little taller, which means the hamstrings exposed to a little more stretch and stress. And then they go up to here. Okay. Almost, you know, full upright position when we get out to 25 or 30 meters. And then it's a short to long progression of graduated uh, progressive hamstring loading. And also we know that the velocity goes up the farther you go out. So from a leverage point of view, more stress. From a speed point of view, more stress. But it's it's divvied out in a way where it's progressive over time. So over, say, 10 days, you're doing maybe 10-yard um, sprints in bunches and then maybe about halfway through that progression by day five you're out to 15 20 then by day seven you're out to 30 and then you know you've done enough sessions of over 30 uh meters then you're you green light them they go back on the field you've done 10 consecutive days of training and then you're like wow they're really fit and they're performing really well 
And in a lot of these cases, they didn't do progressive sprinting before they got injured. So now they're doing the sprinting. And we've had cases where people have just looked uh, sensational because they actually did sprinting and we fixed their mechanics. So the 10 by 10 is kind of the gold that allows you to train people for maximal acceleration without stressing the hamstring. So it's very rare. I've never had anybody get injured doing 10 by 10, but the combination of doing 10 reps consecutively, like I said, it's about 90 seconds. Um, that's uh, an exposure to stress that you just can't get doing something else. And, and because they're layered on top of each other, these 10 reps, you take a three minute break, then you do it again, then you do it again. And because it's acceleration, your upper body's working harder. So when you do 10 by 10 and say you do five to six sets, it feels like you've lifted the whole weight room. Your whole body is like I had, I did a, a podcast with Pat Davidson and he was talking about it. He finally made it to 10 sets and he, he was amazed at how stressful it was and how it was like a total body workout. And he was just fascinated by the, the flexibility of this workout to maybe hit different systems all at once. And so there, there was a, there was a case with the Kansas city chiefs in 2019 training camp where they had run out of some time in terms of the way they budgeted their time. And so they said, we need to do speed work, but we only have about 20 minutes on the field here. And I said, okay, all the guys are doing 10 by 10, try to get three or four sets in. That's all you're going to do for speed and conditioning. Everybody tested better in their shuttle test. It was like a across the field and back shuttle test times 12 with 45 second break. So by doing 10 yard sprints, they did better in their conditioning test because they can reaccelerate more efficiently. And they happened to win the Super Bowl that year, but I'm not saying it's by 10 by it's because of 10 by 10. But you know, you see where this can fit in and it it can get you out of problems where you're like, I don't have enough time and what do I do? And is this gonna apply to my sport? definitely applies to football, definitely apply to soccer, ice hockey. I have ice hockey players doing it. Um, so it's very versatile. And it, 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 like I said, it hits the acceleration piece. It hits the endurance piece, uh, conditioning, there's deceleration, there's, um, you know, sort of a general strength, uh, uh, benefit from doing it. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, okay, I got to find more ways to fit this in my programming. And what are some of the safety nets you're using to keep quality up and not turn it into just a series of, of gassers or just run to you puke? How do you, what are some of the, the rest periods and things like that you're using as, as quality markers? Yeah. Well, one of the things would be making sure that they do adhere to, um, you know, making sure they have like three to four minutes between sets, making sure they're setting up properly in their start have a good acceleration, decelerate, take their time to set up and come back. Because certainly they could turn it into just 10 shuttles back and forth. But if you make them take their time and set up their start position and fall out of their start properly, you could do it at three-point starts or push-up starts. But taking that time and treating each rep as an individual rep, even though you're bundling them together, it's, it's going to be better because you make them be deliberate about doing those repetitions. And of course, you got to monitor it. You can't just send them off and just turn your back on them, right? All hell will break loose. And sometimes you uh, film it, you video it, and you show them and say, okay, that, you know, you got three minute break. Might as well, everybody look, this is how you're accelerating. Let's work on a little more uh, active arm drive, whatever. So it's just coaching. It just comes back to managing that session, 
coaching, providing feedback, making sure people are doing things the right way and, and not leaving them to their own devices. Awesome stuff. So we're getting near near the end here. So uh, Mike, any any questions you want to add in? Because I know I had a bunch that I still wanted to squeeze in if we had more time. But Mike, go ahead. What what, what else do you have? Yeah, so um, obviously this, this 10 by 10 sprint protocol is something that people are going to be asking about. Um, one, where can people get more information on that? And um, if, you know, let's say you get a new strength coach and they want to learn really the basics, the fundamentals from you online, I, if they can't get there in person, um, what products, because I know your, your website has a bunch of different options as far as instructional videos and program design, et cetera. Um, what would you say would be sort of a, the, the, the great starting point for a new strength coach looking to uh, get the basics of speed from you? What product would you recommend to them? It's probably going to be the level one course, the foundations course for running mechanics, uh, because every it's again that if it's an online a course, it's usually 12 hours of content. When I deliver it in person, we spend about eight hours. Um, but the great thing about the online course is that you can refer to it like forever. Right. And as long as the platform is up. Um, so that, that that's very useful. When we do stuff in person, I'll kind of, uh, I'm a little more spontaneous with how I, you know, if I see something, we'll work on that a little more if something's working, but, but certainly um, either, either the in-person or the online foundations course is kind of the start because once you take that, then it's easier for me to start talking about, okay, this is how I modify it for rehab, which is the level two med course. And then in New York, I'm doing the, uh, the planning course. So you need that foundations course to understand what are the building blocks that allow me to really expand on the planning side and the, the rehab side. Um, and then there, if you're interested in the 10 by 10, there is a summer program that I called, I think I just call it like the 10 by 10 program, but that's really good for understanding and, and following the program and getting your feet wet doing it. Because as you guys both probably do yourselves, you got to try stuff and you got to, you know, learn by trial and error. Um, so that 10 by 10 program, you'll see how I've manipulated it to, to work different aspects of training. And um, there's also some supportive elements in there as well, but certainly that's, that's a good way to really understand the value of that program and that protocol. And, and even myself, I'm, you know, again, I'm working with an MMA fighter now, guess what we're doing for conditioning. We're doing 10 by 10. Um, and it's, it's works really well because it kind of conforms to more of the, the rate of work that's going to happen when they fight, which is going to be bursts and regroup bursts, burst, burst, right? It's not this long distance run. He still does his conditioning runs, but we're doing, uh, at least two times, two to three times a week. We're doing the 10 by 10 and working off the ground, working different starting positions. And one, he enjoys it more. And two, I can just feel the intensity that he brings doing that protocol versus maybe a, a more conventional conditioning protocol. Very Great cool. stuff. Um, all right, Eric, you can uh, you can wrap us up, buddy. Yeah, no, this is this is uh, uh, not enough time to cover all the stuff that that, that you could share with us, Derek. So uh, we can't thank you enough for that time. This has been an absolutely incredible experience. Um, and tell us about what you got on the horizon. I know you got the courses that you mentioned. Anything new and exciting you're also working on? Uh, I got got the hat here because I'm going to be heading out to Atlanta to work with the baseball team staff, and that's that's a little new for me. Like I, I've I've worked. With with individual players before and have worked with like 
national team softball in Canada, but uh, working with the major league baseball team will be interesting because of their demands in terms of the schedule. Um, and understand that's what I'm trying to figure out is understand uh, what the limitations are, what the constraints are, and then what we can sneak in to provide some resiliency and, and maybe contribute to things like, you know, throwing speed or batting power just by using more of a sprint based approach, which I think probably hasn't been done as much as it could be in that sport. So that's, that's, um, that's something that's happening in December. And then uh, from there, I'll just try to get back into my courses. I, I might go out to Chicago and work with Northwestern staff and uh, a couple of private facilities, and then just kind of hit some other, uh, maybe go to Boston. We'll see. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm just trying to get back into the in-person stuff uh, because it seems like we have some stability moving forward. Yeah, thank goodness for that. And so I definitely want to circle back as being a, the, the resident baseball geek on this show. I want to circle back and see what you find out there on that end. So uh, we'll we'll definitely follow up on that. Uh, once again, want to thank Derek Hansen for being part of it. This has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks, fellas. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.